How is everybody? Good, 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 good. Hey, uh, we are in the book of Acts. We just started this last week, and, and if you're new to the church or if you're in here and you're not a believer, uh, this is a really, really interesting part of the Bible. Even if you are a believer in here, a lot of people don't know how important uh, chapter two of the book of Acts is. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,200 chapters in the Bible, 66 books, 1,200 chapters. Of those roughly 1,200 chapters, if you had to make like a top five list, uh, Acts chapter two is probably in that list. And then if you were to make a list of the five most important scriptures in the Bible, just a singular passage, um, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39 are probably in that top five as well. So this is a very, very important chapter of the Bible, very monumental part of the Bible. This is basically the birth of the church. So the birth of Christianity is essentially in Acts chapters 1 and 2, more so in Acts chapter 2. If you weren't here last week when we started this, so uh, the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, right? You should have a notes handout, so if you don't have a Bible with you, it's fine. Everything's going to be on that notes handout. But what we talked about last week was this. We talked about that the church, that the Christians, are not responsible for saving humanity. Only God can do that. But we're responsible for cultivating relationships, right? Like making relationships with other people, planting the seed, right? Like planting the seed in the soil, cultivating the soil, watering the soil. That's the analogy we used. But only God can do something with that, right? We're just called to build relationships. God is called to save people. That's what we're called to do. This week, we're going to talk about this, that we must be filled with the Spirit of God in order to be witnesses. That's a very churchy word, and we'll talk about that word a little bit more, but that if we're going to be witnesses of who Christ is, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ. That's essentially what Acts chapter 2 is talking about. And we're going to address some really neat stuff in this. Again, it's a really, really monumental chapter of the Bible. Some really huge things come out of Acts chapter 2. There's a lot of confusion that has come up in the church because of Acts chapter 2, because people haven't explained it well or taught it very accurately, and some bad theology has come from it. But we'll talk about all that today, okay? So again, if you're in here today and you're a Christian and maybe you haven't talked much about the Holy Spirit or the infilling of the Holy Spirit or the birth of the church, hopefully you'll be a little bit educated and a little enlightened about that today. If you're in here and you're not a believer, uh, my hope is just that you feel comfortable in here, that you feel welcome, that people have at the very least been kind and nice to you, and that hopefully something today just kind of piques your interest a little bit. You're like, yeah, maybe I should explore a little bit more into this. And um, so that's my goal today. Is everyone doing okay? Everyone good? Good? The weather's been absolutely fantastic lately. So uh, we will jump into this. We'll see where the Lord takes us. Again, you should have a notes handout. Uh, if you don't, if you have a smartphone, the Bible app, the Uversion app, if you click on the bottom right button, I think it's more, and then click on event, our church will pop up and everything's there for you. Very, very convenient. And uh, I think that's it. I'm going to pray. We'll dive into this and uh, we'll see what happens. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I just want to tell you, thank you, Lord. Thank you for everyone in this room today, God. Thank you for the beautiful weather we've had lately uh, in Tennessee, God. Lord, we want to pray for all the people in Florida, Jesus, and in the South, uh, that you just protect them and keep them safe. And Lord, let everyone get out of there until these storms pass and, and just keep your hand on them and keep your hand on people's family that may be down there. God, we pray that you keep your hand on every church in our community. Pray that you keep your hand on every nonprofit in our community and bless them. And um, God, we just pray that our, our minds can be open today and our ears and our eyes can be open and that we can learn something. We thank you. We love you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit. I've got a lot of ground to cover today, but it won't take too long. We've just got a lot of reading to do, okay? So here we go. 
When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now, when you read the Bible, the Bible talks a lot about the day of Pentecost. Now, in Old Testament terms, the day of Pentecost was referring to 50 days when the Jews, 50 days after the Jewish celebration of Passover. And that was a celebration of back in Moses' time when they had to put the blood of a sacrificial lamb over their doorposts. The angel of death passed over them, right? And so they would celebrate this annually. So it's 50 days after that celebration. In New Testament terms, the day, of, uh, the day of Pentecost represents 50 days after the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus, for everyone's sins. God, so death passes over us, if you will, for eternity. That's what Pentecost is talking about in New Testament terms. So Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he also wrote the book of Luke. Yeah, they were really catchy with their titles sometimes. But anyways, so he also wrote the book of Luke. Luke records a lot of togetherness in Christianity, that Christians hung out a lot together. There was a lot of fellowship. And we see at the opening of chapter two that there was 120 of them hanging out in a room. They were praying and they were waiting on God. And as they were waiting on God, because Jesus told them to pray and wait for the Holy Spirit, they didn't know what that meant, right? But they're waiting. And as they're waiting and praying, it says something like, a rushing mighty wind comes into the room or a violent rushing wind. And this wind had actually been talked about by Jesus before. One time Jesus was talking to a non-believer, a guy named Nicodemus who eventually became a believer. And he told Nicodemus that the wind moves back and forth the way it sees fit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So more than likely Luke, our author here, was not at this event but he had probably heard about it a million times, right? Probably got tired of hearing about it. Yeah, I'm sure it was great. I wasn't there, let me write this down, right? So he probably got sick sometimes of hearing all the people who were witnesses to this event, but Luke recorded this, he took it down, and now we have the document, right? So the first phenomena was this rushing mighty wind that comes into the room, right? Whatever that looked like or felt loud, it was obviously something that could be felt and, and uh, something that it even said could be heard. It was a sound, right, that filled the room. That was the first phenomena. The second one was there was some kind of appearance of something like flames of fire, probably not literal flames that rested on everyone's head, right? That actually wouldn't be too fun, but there was some kind of appearance of some kind of flames that it says were divided and visible with every single person in the room. That was the second phenomenon, right? The third one was everyone in the room began to praise God and talk about the works of God in a language that they should not have known. These were modern languages at this time. And so this event that took place is an isolated, unique event compared to every other event in the Bible. Nothing ever happened quite this way ever again in Scripture as this one event. And what this one event birthed in Christianity was this huge debate over the gift of speaking in tongues. In a lot of Christian circles, and the one I got saved in about 14 years ago, 
use the book of Acts in, in chapter 2, and they commonly use Acts 2 to argue that if one does not speak in tongues, that they have shown no evidence of having the Holy Spirit. Now, that's bad theology, right? So, though the gift, in a, the gift of speaking in tongues is still relevant, and it still happens today, it does not look like what happened in Acts chapter 2. That was a very rare occurrence. The kind of speaking in tongues that happened in Acts chapter 2 was them having the ability to speak languages that were current at the time. The kind of speaking in tongues that most people engage in nowadays is the tongues of angels that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. And there is a big difference, okay? And we'll get on that a little bit more. We also have a huge debate now in Christianity on what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Again, whole denominations have splintered and broken off and people argue, what does it mean to be infilled with the Holy Spirit of God? If one studies the entire New Testament, the entire New Testament, not just cherry picks certain verses that they like, but if they study the whole narrative of the New Testament, in New Testament teaching, when it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it looks like there is a difference. It seems to be a difference between being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems that baptism of the Holy Spirit is associated with our conversion. So when we give our life to Jesus Christ, when we've dedicated ourselves to him, when we've repented of our sin and publicly been baptized, we are also baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are saved, if you will, if that's a better way to put it. But the, un, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is when our cup runs over, if you will, and we have so much Holy Spirit in us that it pours out and it affects the people around us. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit seems in Scripture to happen one time in the life of the Christian when we convert. The infilling of the Holy Spirit should be something that continually happens. It happens over and over and over again, which means we should be pouring out God's Spirit, loving others, serving others, pouring out, positively affecting the world around us. And if we're constantly pouring out, we also have to be constantly filled up. We have to be refilled over and over and over again. Is that, did that make sense? Okay, I confused myself a little bit, but here we go. So there were Jews living in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in their own language. And they were astounded and amazed saying, look, aren't all of these speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent words of God or acts of God in our own language. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some of them sneered and said, they're full of new wine. Okay, so as this commotion is going on, right? This rushing mighty wind, a bunch of people praising God in languages they shouldn't have, shouldn't have been able to speak. A bunch of people crowd around and they're like, what in the heck's up with the Jesus people, right? Christian wasn't a word yet, but they knew that they were followers of Jesus. And so in this time, during the, 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 the feast of Passover, during the Pentecost celebration, 
there would have been somewhere in the neighborhood on that day, 200,000 or so tourists. So there would have been a lot of people in the streets. So this commotion in this downtown upper room would have drawn a lot of attention. So thousands of people started crowding around trying to see what is going on, right? And so they hear all these people speaking in languages that they shouldn't have known. And so they were looking at them going, aren't all these people from North Israel, right? Aren't these all like Galileans? At the very most, they should just speak Aramaic and Greek. Most of them would only speak Aramaic, but they're speaking all these different languages. Luke actually identifies 15 different languages that were being spoken by people who should not have been able to speak those languages. And though they were all speaking in different languages, right, they all had the same theme, the same message, and that was essentially the gospel. They were all talking about the magnificent things of God, all the things that Jesus had done, and God was giving them the ability to speak the gospel. Look at how cool this is. These 15 languages that were mentioned would have represented the entire known world at the time. So there were people that represented every corner of the known world at this time. So when these people came out speaking the gospel in all these 15 different languages, it would have theoretically covered the entire world. Does that make sense? Isn't that crazy? So many people were astounded by that. And they said, what in the heck is going on? What is this? And then other people just laughed at it and said, ah, the Jesus people are drunk, right? And so here's the crossroads that the audience had to come to. There was Jewish people, there were tourists, there was all these different people in this area, and they came to this crossroad. Do they open up their minds and say, man, what is God doing here? This is obviously miraculous. How do we respond to that? They had that choice or they had the other choice. Shrug it off go about their daily lives and just say, ah, they're crazy, and walk on. Here's the thing. Every single person in this room will come to the same crossroad. You will come to the place to where God is doing something in front of you, right? And you can either choose to open your mind and go that route and explore that, or you'll shut it off and say, ah, I got better things to do. All of us in this room will one day come to the same crossroad, all right? Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, men of Judah and all of you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel right here. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Their sons and their daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes." then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you're in here and you don't know anything about Peter, right? That's the guy speaking right there, giving his first sermon. Peter, once upon a time, did not have the best reputation, right? He denied Jesus three times, so he was kind of a coward. In the face of danger, he took off. 
He was known for being hot-tempered, right? One time a guy tried to put his hands on Jesus and Peter grabbed a dagger, cut off his ear. You know, Jesus is like, come on, Peter. Stuck it back on, you know, fix that situation. Little damage control there. But Peter had a really bad attitude at times. And so Peter was not the best of leaders. Now here though, we see a new and improved Peter. Something is different about Peter. He gathers all these confused people, thousands of people, gathers them and starts to lay down a bunch of truth for them. But here's what has happened to Peter, right? The once scared, hot-tempered, bad leader is now this excellent leader with a lot of confidence because now he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And what we learn from that is God never leaves us where he finds us. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we are transformed, we are different. And there's no greater example than probably Peter in the Bible of someone who had this dramatic change. And we see him change and start to lead these people. And one of the first things he says, he goes, hey guys, they're not drunk. It's nine o'clock and that's not a typically like a popular drinking hour, right? So unless you have a serious issue. And so he says, it's nine o'clock, they're not drunk as you suppose. So he starts giving them a history lesson and he starts telling them about prophecies from over 800 years ago. Back in this time, guys, all Jewish people would have known the Old Testament almost like the back of their hand. The 39 books of the Tanakh, they would have studied it day in, day out until they were adults, okay? So they would have known it pretty well. So he goes back, he starts quoting Joel, who was a prophet about 800 years before them, and he started talking about how Joel said, one day God is gonna pour out his spirit on all people who believe and they're gonna do these great things. And Peter's like, look, it's happening. It's happening right now. And he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, on Jesus's name, will be saved. So through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, we now have access to the spirit of God. And because of this direct access, it's no longer religion that saves us. It is calling on the name of Jesus that invokes God's grace. So it's no longer religious acts that they had to do. It was no longer a list of rules. It was people that would humble themselves, call on Jesus's name, that they would be saved. And so Peter was saying that God is at work. And this is proof, what was going on behind them was proof of that. The other thing about Acts chapter two is this. Acts chapter two is the beginning, or it's, I'm sorry, it's the end of the beginning. The beginning was Jesus. He laid down for three and a half years the groundwork of what he wanted his people to do. He even told them during that three and a half years, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be crucified, and I'm gonna raise from the dead, right? And then he told them after that, I'm gonna come back and fill you with my spirit. And that kind of closes one chapter and opens up another one. And that's what we're seeing in Acts chapter two. And this chapter is still open today. The mission of Jesus for his followers has not changed. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God so we can go out and proclaim the good acts and good things about God. That we're to show people the love of God. This mission has not changed. We are to still be doing this today, okay? This part's a little long, bear with me. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you know. 
Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it is not possible for Jesus to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us today. Since he was a prophet, He knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not left in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. God resurrected this Jesus, Peter says. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but Jesus himself. He says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So this is the first sermon. This is the first time Peter ever taught a lesson. And as he gets the attention of this massive crowd, he reminds them about who Jesus is. Now, Jesus was super famous at this time, right? He'd been crucified, right? And not everyone had followed him, but everyone knew who he was. So when he talked about Jesus, everyone would have known who Jesus was, right? So he goes, hey, Jesus came along. He did miracles, he did signs, he did wonders, he did all of these things that our Old Testament told us that he was going to do. So Peter looked at this massive crowd and he said, guys, all of you should have recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. He did all the things our prophets told us he was going to do, but you missed it. You missed it even to the point to where you had him crucified, murdered. So Jesus' crucifixion was preordained by God. God preordained this action to happen. But the men and women who engaged in that action had a choice if they were going to engage in it or not. So what we see in this moment is something that's very hard for Christianity to wrap its brain around. It's a paradox. It's actually called the divine paradox that God predestines things, but we have free will and choice to participate in those things. Just like our salvation, everyone in this room has been preordained to go to heaven or go to hell, but we still have a choice of who we're going to follow. We still have a stake in it. Both of these things exist together, okay? And people don't like that. So not only did Peter claim Jesus had resurrected, Peter kind of like pulls out a secret weapon. He goes, hey, everyone remembers King David, right? The greatest king we've ever had. Everyone's like, well, yeah, of course. He said, well, David talked about Jesus, In Psalm 16, he said that Jesus was going to resurrect and sit at the right hand of God's throne. And there were actually four pieces of evidence that Peter used in this this sermon that he was giving. 
He said, look, King David talked about Jesus. There were 500 witnesses that saw Jesus ascend into heaven, right? He said, uh, there's this, this group of people speaking in languages they shouldn't know, right? That's, that's a piece of evidence. And then he said, there's also us 11 disciples that lived with Jesus for three and a half years, and we have our testimony. So Peter is building up this evidence about who Jesus is. And he starts quoting the Old Testament, right? There's a lot of Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. And what was happening to Peter are these scriptures that he had been learning his entire life that every Jewish kid studied, every Jewish young adult studied. They had the knowledge of the Bible here, but it wasn't until the Holy Spirit filled them that those words became alive, that those words started to connect. And so Peter, now being filled with the Spirit of God, was becoming enlightened, right? All the things were starting to fall into place. He's connecting the dots of the centuries and centuries and centuries of prophecies and writings, all of this, Old Testament, points to Jesus, and then all of the New Testament just emphasizes the teachings of Jesus, that it is all about Him, that He is the linchpin to everything. Now, if we study the Bible, which by the way, I got my undergraduate degree at MTSU in English, right? I was, a, I was not a Christian until my senior year of college. That's when I became a Christian. When I got my degree in English, um, one of the minors you could get, I don't know if they still offer it or not at MTSU, one of the minors you could get is called Great Books. And you could choose one piece of literature and get a minor in that piece of literature. One of the pieces that they offered at MTSU was the Bible not from a spiritual background, but from a historical and archeological background, because it is a pretty monumental piece of literature, right? Whether you're a believer or not a believer. But here's the thing about the Bible. When one is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible is not just historical and archeological. It becomes life-giving instruction. It becomes something that when we read it, it becomes deep and it penetrates the heart and it speaks to our soul and it encourages us and inspires us and changes our behaviors and our patterns. And the gospel, the good news about Jesus, doesn't just stop at the fact that he died for us and resurrected. It continues today with the fact that we are filled with his spirit. Let me go back. Now, this may be the most important part of my sermon today, okay? Like I said earlier, if Acts chapter two is in the top five most important chapters, verse 38 is probably in the top three most important verses in the entire Bible, okay? And I'm about to read that to you. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, Peter testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. Now, let me see if I can paint this picture for you. There's thousands of people listening to Peter. Right now in this room, there's roughly, you know, 800 to 1,000 people, right? So imagine two or three times this amount. And Peter is yelling at them, right? And he's not yelling at them, but he's yelling because it's such a massive crowd. And he paints this picture of who Jesus is. Now imagine if you're in the crowd, listen, imagine if you're in the crowd 
And just a couple of months prior to this event, you were one of the ones yelling for Jesus to be crucified. Imagine you were one of the ones that as the Romans nailed him to a cross, you were laughing, scoffing, and saying, kill him, get him, kill him, crucify him. And then you realize that you were calling for the death of the Son of God. When it says deep conviction, deep conviction. When they realized what they had done, that they had a hand in crucifying the Savior, they said, Peter, what do we do? This shows that they were stunned, that they were appalled. Let me get a little churchy on you here for a second. Every single person in this room was responsible for the death of Jesus. So when we realize, because if you've sinned, you're responsible for him being on the cross as well, right? So if you were in this room and you have acknowledged that you had a hand in putting an innocent savior nailed to a cross, our only response to that should be humbling and we should be appalled at what we've done. You guys are awake out there, right? Everyone's good? Okay, all right, just making sure. I didn't know if I was in the, the only one in the room or not. So the response to the revelation of Jesus is this. In Acts 2.38, in my opinion, one of the most pivotal scriptures in the entire Bible, because what we see is probably the most important question in the entire Bible. When they realized who Jesus was and what they had done, they said, what do we do? What do we do? How do we fix this? How do we respond? We feel remorse for our decision. Peter says, here's what you do. You ask God to forgive you of your sins. You repent and you get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins and God will fill you with his Holy Spirit. It is so simple. And now the Bible is not formulaic, but we get as close to a formula as, as we do in the Bible in Acts chapter two. And here's kind of the formula. The method that one goes through to become a follower of Jesus Christ is essentially this. First, we acknowledge who he is. We realize that is the Savior, right? He is God incarnate. He has come down. He has died for my sins, and he loves me more than anything. That is, that is Jesus. We acknowledge this. After we acknowledge who he is, we ask God to forgive us for anything that we have done that has offended him or been counterintuitive to what he is. We repent for our sins. Repenting, though, is not just saying we're sorry. Repenting is turning from a life of sin. To where if I start to understand that looking at pornography offends God and is unhealthy, not just for my relationship with him, but my relationship in general, right? When I realize that that's a sin and it's not good, right? Not only do I say I'm sorry for that, I shut the laptop or I get accountability or I do whatever I need to do to step away from that sin. So repentance isn't just a one-time thing, it's a lifestyle, that every time something comes up in our life that is counter what God wants to be there, we ask God to forgive it and we turn away from these things. Then we are baptized. That's the same thing as putting on a wedding ring, right? That we let everyone know that we belong to Jesus. It's our public statement that we are followers of Christ. And then after our repentance and baptism, we devote our lives to him through prayer, through studying the word, through applying the word of God to every corner of our life. This is essentially what every Christian is supposed to do, this walk. And through this process, we not only receive the Holy Spirit, but we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul echoes the, word, the, the words of Peter in Ephesians 1.13, when Paul says that when we truly believe in Jesus, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, when we say believed, 
A lot of people say they believe in God. If I believe, if I live in Florida and I believe that this storm is coming up, right? If I truly believe that, I'm going to evacuate and leave. If I truly believe that I'm driving off a cliff, I'm going to grab the steering wheel and go a different direction. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is everything the Bible says he is, it will make a difference in how you live. There will be a response to that because true belief always beckons a response. Not just from us repenting and being baptized, true belief beckons a response from God. That when he sees our true belief, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And this promise, promise, that's an important word, is for everybody, everyone who God calls and if they respond. So Peter testified, he strongly urged them, like I'm doing now I feel like, to be saved from this corrupt generation, showing that some people still needed further convincing. But what Peter was saying was essentially this, you don't have to like go kill an animal and cut it up into all these parts and burn certain parts and build an altar. You didn't have to do all that religious stuff anymore. Peter was just saying, humble yourselves, recognize that you need Jesus, call on his name, ask for him to help, and you will receive his spirit. And then after you receive his spirit, you are qualified and equipped and ready and empowered to live a life of obedience to God. And so after this happened, we now see the application of what happens when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. So those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude praising God and having favor with all people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. So immediately after Peter's sermon, 3,000 plus people gave their lives to Jesus and were baptized. And after this move of the Holy Spirit, after 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus and are publicly baptized, we start to see the life of the early church we start to see in its purest form what the church should look like. And here's what the church should look like. The church within its community should devote themselves to the teachings, both of the, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They devote themselves to fellowship. We call that small group. They devote themselves to the breaking of bread. That's communion. And they devoted themselves to prayer. Church was never called to be the show that we've made it into today. It wasn't called to be all the different things that we've transformed it into. They're called to study the word. They're called to fellowship with each other, take communion and pray. That is the primary function and the core of what the Christian community should be doing. And then also the gifts of the spirit were manifested in that. That miraculous things were starting to happen through the apostles. And because of these miraculous things, more people became believers in Jesus. Now, if you don't know what the gifts of the Spirit are that he's referring to right here, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12, and I made a list for you. 
People were given the gift of speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, healing, miracles, the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, the gift of discernment, basically be able to decipher what is good and what is evil, prophecy, and courageous faith. Now, these are not things for us to be afraid of. These aren't things for us to ignore and skip over like they don't exist anymore. These are gifts that God has given the church to lift us up, to edify us, to encourage each other, and to build our relationship with Him. We shouldn't be afraid of these things. We should be educated about these things. That's why Paul said, brothers, I don't want there to be any confusion about the gifts of the Spirit. That's how he opens up chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Not to shy away from them, but to be educated about these things. And not only does the church do these things within its community, the church is called to go outside of, of their worship gatherings and of their church buildings. They follow Jesus' command literally to love one another and love people the way they love, them, they, they love themselves through helping out the less fortunate and by even selling things that they had when other people didn't have basic necessities. And so here's the thing in our modern culture, guys. I know we don't see a lot of child homelessness in our community, though there is some. In fact, we have an organization called Endure Athletics where the, the, the founders of that organization come to this church and they deal with dozens of homeless children in your neighborhood, right? And they struggle to make ends meet because churches don't give them any money. And so when there are people's needs that need to be met, maybe not right here, but other parts of the world, other parts of the country, with all of the affluence in modern day church, with all of the excess that we have now, if we are not sacrificing so other people can have the basic necessities to live, one day Christianity is going to have to answer to God for that. You know how much it costs through Compassion International to sponsor a child, to give them food and health care for a month? It costs 38 bucks. 38 bucks. Instead of having a fourth television in your house, you could sell that and give a kid food and health care for a year. And when the church does not step up and do these kinds of things for the world around them, we are not being what Christ intended the church to be. We are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. I told you a couple of weeks ago, my huge sacrifice to make sure a kid has food and health care was I went from a venti iced coffee to a grande. That dollar a day was enough for me to feed and give health insurance to a kid in Colombia. And all of us in this room, there's no reason why all of us in this room can't make small sacrifices. And if we did, it would make a global impact. And that's what the church did. They loved each other like that. Does that mean that we're socialists? Man, look at Kami Corey up there, right? You know, like someone will send an email or make some kind of accusation, right? That I hate everything and I think we should all like live in a commune together. That's not it, right? We are called to willingly and lovingly sacrifice for the greater good. Jesus has called us to do that. Now, the difference between Christianity and socialism, and socialism is a mandate from, from the government. It is a law. And laws do not change the hearts of people. The difference between socialism and Christianity is Jesus Christ has put his spirit in us, hold on, so we love other people enough to where we don't have to be forced to help them, we want to help them. That's the difference between Christianity and socialism. And so we shouldn't have to be mandated to love people. By the fact that everyone in this room is made in God's image, we should love them solely for that fact. Solely for that fact. 
So and because the early church did this, you know, all these churches nowadays are figuring out how to grow their churches. Man, if we just put more big screens and if we had some celebrity come up and juggle on a tricycle or something, like we'd get all this stuff going on, right? That's how churches think they're going to grow. You know how the church grew? It grew by loving the world around them. It grew by reaching out and being witnesses of Christ around them. They were joyful. They were humble. They had a good reputation with the entire community. That's how the church grew. Because of this, God kept adding more and more to the Christian movement. And the followers of Jesus were filled with his spirit, which enabled them to have joy and it enabled them to go out and look like Jesus. And because they looked like Jesus, people were attracted to Jesus. So again, this real churchy term, witnessing, right? Witnessing, which basically means us going out and being an example of Jesus Christ in the world around us. That's what witnessing is, right? Witnessing begins here in what we're doing right now. That we are to be devoted to the word of God, that we're to fellowship with each other, hold each other accountable, get to know each other, share with others if, if they have needs to, to be there for each other. We're to take communion, which I know is different from the way it was in the New Testament. We don't have two hours every time we take communion to cook a big potluck meal and, and drink, you know, like bowls of wine together. We don't really have the time and energy and money to do that anymore. So we have the wafers and we have the juice that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus. And we take communion every time we're together. We're called to pray together and we're called to worship with each other. It starts here, but it does not stay here. To be a witness means we show Christ outside of these walls through our benevolence, through our kindness, through our community service, through our integrity in business and in the school systems or wherever we are, that we have integrity, that we are peaceful people, peace-loving, peaceful people, and that we love every single person, every human, that we love all of them, regardless of how they believe, regardless of how mean and honorary they may be, regardless of the things that they've done, that we love all people. This is how we are witnesses to the world around us. Here's the problem, though, and Christians in the room, this is where I'm going to kind of get in your grill a little bit. The only way to be a witness is if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about your salvation. You can be a saved, unproductive Christian. I'm not talking about someone who's just going to squeak into heaven. My ultimate goal isn't just to make sure that you get saved. My ultimate goal is that you become disciples who make disciples, that you go out and that you, what you have been touched by with God, that you share this with others. So we can be sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? Saved, that comes from our conversion. But that's not where we're to stop. The only way to go out and to minister to the world around us, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to love people the way we should, is we must be filled. A cup can only spill what it contains. We must be full of the Holy Spirit, pour out the Holy Spirit, and be constantly refilled by it. So my question for you today is this. Are you confident that you're filled with the Spirit of God? Are you confident that, you, that your cup is running over with the Holy Spirit of God? What are you, can, if you are pouring out, if you are serving, if you are giving back, let me ask you this. You're going to run on empty if you're not constantly being filled up. So what are you doing to be filled up? Are you reading the Word of God? Boy, God put me on my face the other day. I was in my office and I was so burned out with just humanity in general. I was like, done, right? 
And I started reading the book of Galatians and I got all the way to the end of Galatians in chapter six when it says, don't grow weary of doing good because you will reap at the proper time. And I said, God, thank you so much. I will continue to push on, thank you. But we have to be poured into. We have to be encouraged by the word of God, by prayer. We have to be encouraged with our community, pouring into each other, loving each other, being there for each other. How are you being filled up? What are you doing with the Holy Spirit that's running over you? If you are full of the Holy Spirit, what are you doing? Are you reaching out to the people in your workplace? Are you loving your family the way you should? Are you serving your community? Are you giving to your community? Are you giving to the church? Are you serving the church? Are you, posit- are you speaking life into people? Are you encouraging people? Are you holding people up? Are you asking them how they're doing? Are you asking about their family? Are you there for them? What are we doing with the Holy Spirit that is inside of us? Are we displaying the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? And if you don't know what that is, and if you're a Christian in here, there's a problem. You should know what the fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians 5. You should know what the gifts of the Spirit are in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. And if you don't know those, that's your homework. Go through that. Am I displaying these things? Do I show love and peace and gentleness and self-control and the other fruit? Is God working in my life with wisdom and knowledge? Am I asking for God to give me the, 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 the gifts of the Spirit to work in my community? Am I doing these things? We live in crazy times, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Bible says that if any of you ask for the gift of wisdom, not only will God give it to you, he'll give it to you in abundance. This is a promise that God has given us, that everyone in this room, if we ask for God to make us wise, he will give us wisdom. Why aren't we doing that? We live in crazy times, and we need wisdom. We need wisdom. And God wants to give us these things, but we don't seek these things. We don't ask for these things. I think some of us are so busy just maintaining that we forgot that it's not God's intention for us just to maintain. Healthy organisms grow. They were intended to go outside of the walls. They were intended to go outside of just our little world and affect people around us. God has commissioned us to go out and be light, to be a source of healing and connection to other people. That's what God has called us to do. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, right? You're just not a believer. You're just, the whole Jesus thing just isn't clicking with you right now. I just want to tell you, I hope that at the very least, you've seen some tenderness and love and benevolence and kindness from Christianity. That even if you're not, not on board with us yet, that it, you've at least felt some positive effects to that. And if you haven't, I'm sorry that you haven't yet, but I hope you do from this community. If you are in this room and you are a Christian, here's something that's been bothering me. I think the reason why more of us aren't filled with the Holy Spirit and doing more for God is because we have so much unrepentant sin in our hearts that there's no room for God in there. So if you're going to be filled with God, you have to be emptied of yourself. And you have to be emptied of your desires and your selfishness and the things that you've done to kind of create a blockage for God to get into your heart. So today, I encourage you, before you take communion, that you would ask God to forgive you, that you would ask God to examine your heart. God, if there's anything in here that is convoluting or clouding what your Holy Spirit needs to do in my life, God, remove it. Show it to me. Let me take the steps, God, to open up so so you can fill me up. 
And when you take communion today, guys, remember that's not just about the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Communion represents the door, the gateway for us to be full of the Holy Spirit of God himself. That we can do great things, world-changing things. Not because we're good, but because goodness now lives in us. There'll be people up here for, for you to pray with if you need prayer. There's communion all the way around you. Please don't leave this room without taking advantage of just connecting with God, getting a clean slate, and, and don't leave here today until you feel like you have been filled and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Be foolish of you. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, I just want to thank you, God. Again, if there's anyone in this room who is either new to the faith or they've been hurt by the faith or maybe they're not a Christian yet, God, again, I just pray that they felt welcomed and comfortable today and invited. God, for the people in this room who are believers, that, that they believe in you and they know who you are, God, I pray, Father, that you fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you display the fruit of the Spirit in their lives every day, that you give them the gifts of the Spirit that you see fit, God, and that you think will benefit your kingdom the most. I pray, God, that you give us wisdom. Lord, you said that we can ask for that one. I want to ask, God, that you give us wisdom with our families, with our occupations, with our roles and our different lives and, and what we do, God, that you give us wisdom. Give us love, Father. Fill us up with your love, God, so we can go out and effectively love all people. Lord Jesus, for everyone who comes up here and gets prayed for, I pray, God, that, that the, the men and women up here who are praying, that they can bind together and that you'll hear those prayers. For everyone that takes communion today, God, I pray, Lord, that they take it with a repentant, pure heart and that you bless them for remembering you and what you've done for us, God. And I pray, God, that we leave this place and that everyone around us, that your Holy Spirit that bubbles up out of us touches all those lives, touches our families, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, God, and that they're blessed by it, Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you and we praise you. It's in your holy name that we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. I hope you have a great week. You should say hi to someone before you leave. Give them a big hug.